You're listening to the GP Supervisors Australia podcast. Common infections in general practice. Helping your registrar make the best decision, part one. Our guest is Professor Josh Davis. We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this recording was produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present, future and their families. Welcome everyone. My name's Simon Morgan. I'm a GP and medical educator here in Newcastle. And it's a great pleasure to introduce our content expert and primary speaker for tonight, uh, Professor Josh Davis. Josh is an infectious diseases physician working at the John Hunter Hospital here in Newcastle and also works uh, as a researcher for the School of Health Research um, Menzies um, based out of Darwin. Josh leads a number of uh, important clinical trials around common uh, infections, um, including staph aureus septicemia and bone and joint infections. And I think really of great value tonight, Josh is on the writing group of Therapeutic Guidelines Antibiotics, so has a, a real insight into the way those guidelines have been developed and the evidence behind them and also is the immediate past president of ACID, the Australasian Society for Infectious Diseases. So Josh, a very warm welcome and wonderful to have you on board tonight. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. And essentially the learning objectives tonight, very much as supervisors, your role in supporting registrars, managing common infections in general practice, really in an evidence-based way and um, making the right calls around investigation and management. We've cut this talk into two sessions tonight. We're covering urinary tract infections and skin and soft tissue. And next week, this time next week, talking about diarrhea and GI issues like diverticulitis and respiratory tract infections. So look, why are we talking about this? Uh, It is really, I guess, very common aspect of what we do, high prevalence in terms of what general practitioners see and do in practice. Something like 10 per 100 or you know, 10% of the encounters that we uh, manage in general practice have these very common uh, infective uh, sort of presentations as, as what we're managing. There's diagnostic uncertainty. I guess you know, many of these things are, are clear cut, but others not. And I think there's a real nervousness about missing something more serious. Josh will be talking a lot about, I guess, natural history and what, how these uh, infections will manifest. And really, yes, there's potential for serious disease, but mostly they're self-limiting. And of course, really underpinning this talk is our critical role in contributing to antimicrobial stewardship and minimizing inappropriate antibiotic prescribing. And this is a study, just to put that into some sort of context, Yes, it's from the UK, and yes, it's a few years ago now, but I'm not sure that its age would make any substantive change because I don't know that things have improved that much. Nearly a million consultations in UK general practice, and looking at those rates of antibiotic prescribing for common respiratory illness, and I know we're talking about that next week, but acute bronchitis, sore throat, and acute otitis media, really high rates when we know so many of these infections don't warrant and guidelines would suggest uh, don't need antibiotics. The other really important aspect of this is prescription duration and that we're commonly as GPs treating these common infections 
uh, for durations of uh, the course longer than is recommended. So Josh, I'm not sure what your take on that from an Australian perspective would be. Yeah, I mean, I've over the last few years been shocked to find out some stats about Australian antibiotic use. We, I think most Australians think we don't overuse antibiotics because we compare ourselves with Southeast Asian countries where you can buy antibiotics over the counter. But in terms of tonnage per capita, Australia is in the top 10 countries in the world for human antibiotic use. But in addition to animals and so on in humans, we're in the top 10 in the world. And secondly, the second fact that I think is kind of shocking is that um, from PBAC data, in an average year, around 50% of all Australians have at least one, uh, are issued at least one antibiotic prescription each year. So, yeah, it's a problem in Australia and probably much more so than in Europe, in fact. Mm. And when you talk about tonnage, uh, it does put that into perspective. <laughs> all right. So, yes, absolutely. The whole notion of appropriate use of antibiotics, which really should be considered a pretty precious resource, will be underpinning what we'll be talking about tonight. And really... Uh, you, I imagine most of the supervisors, if not all of them, and their registrars will have access to therapeutic guidelines, generally electronically. I remember the old colourful books on our shelves, but online now. But uh, just to flag this more freely available resource, the Antibiotic Prescribing and Primary Care Summary from 2019, which talks about some of those common infections that we will be managing in Australian general practice, talking about appropriate antibiotics and when they should be prescribed, durations of courses and talks and flags those commonly overused antibiotics, uh, amoxicillin, clavulanic acid, cephalexin, cephachlor, roxithromycin and erythromycin. So really just thinking strategically about which antibiotics and when, and that'll be the, very much the theme of the talk. So let's start because essentially this is going to be a bit of back and forth between myself and Josh as the GP, GP supervisor, supervisor of a registrar and our uh, expert, our content expert who will be able to give us some advice. So this is Claire. She's 32. She's otherwise very well. And she presents with a very common presentation in general practice of dysuria and frequency. She's got maybe a little bit of lower pelvic pain, but certainly no flank pain. She's afebrile. We dipstick her urine and it's positive for leukocytes and nitrites. Now, this isn't a talk on differential diagnosis. She has an uncomplicated UTI. Yes, lots of people probably think we need to exclude STIs and other causes, but she looks to have an uncomplicated urinary tract infection, but she's keen to avoid antibiotics because they give her thrush. So we'll launch our first poll for tonight, if that's okay. We're trying to make this interactive. So how would you manage, Claire, I guess treating empirically, um, plus sending off a culture, treating empirically, but ignoring the fact she, um, we don't need to culture her, symptomatic management and a backup script with a culture or a symptomatic backup script and, and not worrying about a culture. So the results are coming through. Um, Lots of uh, the biggest, uh, well, they're about equal there, treating empirically with antibiotics and a culture or symptomatic management um, with a backup script about neck and neck. Thank you very much. And so what's your take on that, Josh, those uh, poll results? So, yeah, interesting, as you say, that they're kind of two most popular were just treat empirically 
with antibiotics and send off a urine culture. Um, and that's, uh, that's certainly what the guidelines suggest um, and would be consistent with them. Um, or symptom management, although I've got to say that it's kind of controversial among whether you should send an MCS or not, but I think you should, and I'll tell you why. Um, and then the second most symptom management with a backup script plus a culture, which is um, interesting. I'm surprised that many people said this, but um, because to me in the last five or 10 years, it's fairly new information that UTIs can get better without antibiotics, which we'll be talking about. So just a bit of background about uncomplicated UTIs, as I just mentioned, between 50 and 70% of these will resolve without antibiotics after seven days. And those data come from randomised controlled trials as well as natural history experiments. And I'll touch on a couple of RCTs in a minute. Ibuprofen is fairly effective for the pain associated with these UTIs. Drinking adequate fluid is really important and evidence-based. Although, however, cranberry products that there's been a lot of research on, if you put it all together, it really doesn't seem to have a consistent beneficial effect. Um, URAL can, in some patients, improve their symptoms, but it doesn't uh, make the infection get better faster. So in, non, in, in the average woman, it's certainly a viable or a reasonable option to not give her antibiotics and say, look, if you don't get better within two or three days, start to turn the corner, then start this antibiotic script. However, that we shouldn't do that in some people. So pregnant women should be treated men should always be treated and, and young children because these randomised trials were done in basically young, uh, reproductive age, healthy women. And then, so there's been at least three randomised trials now where people with UTI were randomised to either get ibuprofen or an antibiotic, which was considered quite an audacious thing to try originally, but it's becoming a little bit more accepted now. As I've said, most people got better whichever one they got. However, complications, so... Uh, progressing to getting pyelonephritis, a severe infection that might have needed to go to hospital, was statistically significantly more common in those who did not get antibiotics, even though it wasn't very, it didn't happen that often. So two to three percent of people in the ibuprofen group and close to zero in the antibiotic group. So uh, putting it in a different way, you need to treat about 30 to 50 patients with antibiotics to avoid one case of pyelonephritis. Um, but because that's a serious outcome, that's why guidelines still recommend treat uh, in general, but um, it's certainly reasonable not to, given these data. Um, and the other thing these data show is the people treated with antibiotics got better a little bit faster, but at day seven, there was no real difference. So Josh Clare's results do come back a few days later, and she's got a clear, clean catch with lots of white cells and a pure growth of E. coli but hmm, this is a bit sobering. Lots and lots of resistant organisms, uh, or at least uh, resistant antibiotics to these common antibiotics we might use, and sensitive to a couple of things that certainly I would struggle to pronounce and certainly I can't uh, prescribe in general practice. I give her a call just to see how she's traveling, and she has started the backup script because she's no better and still symptomatic. And I think I'm not sure where to go here. What, what would you advise? Uh, the GPs. So I don't be interesting to know how many of you have seen this kind of resistance pattern, but certainly in hospital practice, I see it quite commonly. And this resistance pattern, which is 
resistant to really all the first line antibiotics and all the beta-lactams apart from meropenem, um, and even resistant to keftraxone and gentamicin and cipro. Um, that's the kind of classic pattern for an ESBL producing organism. So that stands for extended spectrum beta-lactamase. And as you know from, can tell from the name, that really just makes them resistant to beta-lactam antibiotics like cephalosporins and penicillins. But the reason they're a big problem is because these um, enzymes, are, these genes are generally carried on a plasmid, which is a mobile genetic element that bacteria pass to each other very easily. And the plasmid tends to accumulate other resistance genes as well. So to gentamicin, cipro, et cetera. So generally ESBL are multi-drug resistant. So they're resistant to at least three classes of antibiotics. Around 12% of E. coli's in the community are multi-drug resistant ESBL carriers and 20% of hospital ones. So it's not such a rare scenario what we're talking about with this patient. So how do we treat that? Up until recently, really the only option if you wanted to treat with antibiotics was to go to hospital and have an intravenous antibiotic, either amicacin or meropenem. And some patients would come once a day to the ED and get an injection for a few days. Sometimes we'd put them on a hospital in the home type service or admit them to hospital. There is an oral option that's now available that, that it's not that widely known about called phosphomycin. It was TGA approved in Australia about three, four years ago been used in Europe for decades. And a single three gram dose is quite effective for cystitis, basically, including these highly resistant ones. The problem is it's, it's about $150 for a single dose. So generally, if someone is referred to me with this pattern, which happens not infrequently, I arrange for the hospital to, I arrange to sort of see them briefly at the hospital, then they're a hospital patient and then I can, the hospital pharmacy can sort of provide them with this drug because it saves the health system a lot of money, avoiding admission. So Josh, I might just put a couple of comments to you. Resistance like we've presented is rare in GP land. So but you've, you've given us some data that 12% of um, infections are ASBL. And it's another one, resistance to penicillin trimethoprim is high, it's common, um, but resistance to cephalosporin is very rare. What, what would you make of those comments? And also, I, I presume there's quite a regional um, resistance patterns that somebody might be working in a, in a setting that the resistance is quite different to somewhere else. Yeah, no, they're great points. I guess I should point out this 12% of community-acquired 20% of hospital E. coli count comes from the AGAR group, Australian Group on Antimicrobial Resistance, and they take um, representative isolates from every... Um, region of Australia basically from hundreds of laboratories and the community acquired ones they're GP they're, they're primary care specimens so it is it might be rare in individual people's practices but overall in Australia it's not rare these percentages here are also from agar so they're overall in Australia amoxicillin someone mentioned cephalosporin uh, resistance is rare well, first generation cephalosporin like cephalosporin resistance, sorry, um, cephalexin resistance, I meant in E. coli, is in about sort of 10% of um, E. coli's in Australia. To, yeah, just one sort of interesting side fact is you mentioned, you know, you'd think this would be much more common, say, in big cities that are, and especially in patients that have been in and out of big hospitals and so on. 
recently we've been looking in remote northern Australian remote communities in northern Australia, Aboriginal communities with you know very little city contact. And there's actually reasonably high rates of ESBL E. coli carriage in people out there as well. So it's not only in Melbourne and Sydney. All right, we'll keep the urinary tract theme going. Harriet's our next patient, and she actually presents to our registrar with another UTI, and that's the uh, often the way that patients may present when they're having recurrent episodes. Um, she's got diet-controlled type 2 diabetes, which is um, well-controlled, but she says, look, this is about the sixth time in 18 months. Um, she has been imaged in the past, and she asks, is there anything I can take? And your registrar thinks, well... You know, I've seen people on prophylactic antibiotics. I guess maybe there's uh, some lifestyle things you can do. What What is the evidence for managing recurrent UTIs? So recurrent UTIs generally taken to mean three in a year or two in six months. And really the only thing that's been shown in randomised trials to decrease the incidence of them is drinking more water. And it, people don't believe me when I say that, but actually... Um, it was only one RCT, but it showed quite a significant uh, benefit. So that, that's important. Topical estrogen, not so much in RCTs, but in lots of observational data in postmenopausal women is effective in decreasing recurrent UTIs, and that's important to think about. Hippuric acid, conflicting data, some studies showing benefit, some not. Cranberry and vitamin C, I mentioned in the past, don't work. Antibiotic prophylaxis, oh, sorry, there's single dose prophylaxis and most commonly post-coital um, in young women who seem to get a UTI whenever, every time they have sex or sometimes after sex. Um, that's anecdotally quite effective. They just take a single dose of trimethoprim, for example, after post-coitally and that works. Um, and then there's continuous prophylaxis that Simon was referring to. Now it works, it actually works quite well. However, um, the person does generally end up with uh, um, being colonised with bacteria that are resistant to whatever antibiotic you're using. So it's recommended that if out of desperation you go to this, to just do it for a three to six month period and then stop. And often then things have kind of reset and they stop getting the recurrent UTIs. Another patient presents for her 75-year-old health check. I'd actually be really interested to know from the supervisors whether a dipstick urine is incorporated into this particular aspect of care for otherwise well asymptomatic patients. Certainly it has been a part of our practice, which I've challenged, but she comes in, she's well, and she's, um, she has a urine dipstick which shows leukocytes. She hasn't had any um, a urinary tract infection for a number of years. So a poll, how would you manage Grace? So. Completely well, 75-year-old woman with a positive dipstick for leukocytes. Um, ignore it, tell her not to bother, send it off for a culture and see what it shows, um, or maybe start some empirical antibiotics. All right, so again, about half of you have said ignore the dipstick and reassure her, and the other half send the urine off and see what it shows. Again, asymptomatic bacteria. What's your understanding, Josh, of how we should manage this not uncommon presentation in general practice and I guess even more frequently in the residential aged care setting? I'm glad no one said send urine for culture and start empirical antibiotics but um, 
I don't think this audience is representative because that it certainly happens quite often, especially in nursing home settings, but even in acute hospital settings and elsewhere. Um, so asymptomatic bacteria is really common. Between 20 and 50% of women over age 70 have it and more likely if they have diabetes and as they get older. There's been at least nine randomised trials comparing treating with antibiotics with no treatment. Um, and overall, there's no benefit. So the, the, the bacteria do clear from the urine when you treat with antibiotics, but they just come back. And in fact, two of the RCTs have shown those who got antibiotics were more likely to get a symptomatic UTI over the next few months than those who you didn't give antibiotics, probably because you've disturbed their microbiome and that E. coli was just sitting there not causing a problem out competing, you know, worse versions of E. coli. So generally speaking, it should not be treated. And the exceptions are in pregnancy where it is associated with premature labor, for example. So it should be treated or if someone's about to have urological surgery, but, and therefore you shouldn't send a culture because once people have sent a culture and you get the result back and it's showing this pure growth of organisms, it's kind of quite hard to resist treating the patient. And that generally ends up happening if a culture is sent off. So culture shouldn't be sent off in asymptomatic bacteria. Well, in general, unless there are symptoms, I mean. And then in, in elderly people and, and particularly in nursing home settings, it can be tricky because when we're talking about symptoms, we're talking about things like frequency, dysuria, suprapubic pain, and particularly delirious or demented patients may not complain of those symptoms. So a common scenario is an elderly person with dementia becomes delirious and you don't know why, and you test their urine and there's bacteria there because there are in 50% of people, women anyway. So a couple of points about that is it's really common. So we shouldn't screen or treat for asymptomatic bacteria in nursing homes. And it's a commonly held fallacy that urine that's smelly or cloudy um, suggests there's a UTI, it doesn't. It's been looked into in a lot of detail. It's no more likely to be infected than urine that's not smelly or cloudy. And it's smelly or cloudy because of the solutes that are in the urine. In other words, what you're eating and drugs you're taking and whatever you're excreting in the urine, or because you're dehydrated and it's concentrated. There is a question, Josh, um, that there's a well-held belief that nursing home nurses, the older ones, can often smell a UTI. Have there been any <laughs> RCTs on this? Um, there haven't been RCTs, but there have been, not specifically around nurses, but the smell of urine does not correlate with UTI. Josh, um, Josh has a very um, steady grant funds um, stream, so I'm sure he'll put that onto the list of possible um, research projects um, that are coming. But that's a that's an interesting question. I wouldn't be surprised if a beagle could do it, because <laughs> you know beagles can diagnose tuberculosis, COVID, etc., but probably not nurses. So the the current ETG recommended empirical treatment for uncomplicated UTIs, trimethoprim's first line, even though there's around 15% odd resistance. Um, but because it's the narrowest spectrum agent and it's highly concentrated in the urine and well tolerated, usually in a once a day drug, um, then kefalexin or nitrofurantoin are equal second ranking. And then for directed therapy, i.e. you've got a culture back and it's resistant to those things, augmentin or aquinolone or phosphomycin. And quinolones in the last few years have had two FDA black box warnings about using them because of tendon inflammation and enlargement of 
uh, rupture of AAAs. I mean, those are both rare things, but it's just worth knowing about that it's a possible complication. There was one question, and that was just about the SBL. Well, there's more than one, but I might just come to that one. With no or resolving symptoms, do we really need to treat? No. Yeah, so just have, just the fact that it's an ASBL doesn't make a difference about whether you should treat or not. It's just that if you do treat, what you need to use. So if that scenario was clear, you sent off a culture, didn't treat her, you got the culture back into ASBL and you ring her and she says, I'm better, that's fine. You just leave it alone, don't treat it. And just a bit of a theme. I mean, it's interesting. We'll be talking about sore throats and pussy tonsils and role of antibiotics next week. And I must say, even though I know the evidence, it's actually very difficult not to treat somebody who comes in with a raging sore throat, even though I know it's very difficult to determine whether it's the strep or not. And similarly, somebody who's got a, a bad urinary tract infection, and there's just been some comments around, you know, it's pretty hard not to treat somebody who presents with good going symptoms, even if it's uncomplicated. And we know that that data, I guess that's just defaulting to patient-centered care and negotiating options with the patient. And perhaps somebody says, look, I'm actually really happy to give it a shot and just try some ibuprofen and see how I go with a backup script. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not particularly advocating not treating uncomplicated UTIs. I just think it's a viable, it's a reasonable option not to if that's what the patient wants to do and they're not very sick. If they've got really bad symptoms, you should just treat them. They've got mild symptoms and you know, they want to get better quicker or whatever, that's fine, treat them with antibiotics. It's not the low, the low hanging fruit for antibiotic overuse is respiratory infections, not this. So let's move on to Fran, who's 60, and she presents to your registrar with three days of a painful swelling in her right foot. Um, she's got a history of obesity, hypertension on an ACE inhibitor, and her temperature is just mildly elevated at 37.4. And the foot, it's hot and red and swollen and perhaps no, uh, you know, not a massive diagnostic dilemma here. But uh, what is the differential here? Maybe into chat, just a couple of things you may need to entertain other than uh, cellulitis, which is um, clearly the topic that we're going to be covering here. So we'll see what you're saying. Let's go down. Cellulitis, there you go. Um, so yes, very good, gout. I think that's an important one. Anything more sinister that we might need to worry about? A DVT, very good. But certainly some leg cellulitis, we need to think of um, DVT, lymphedema, septic arthritis, superficial thrombophobitis, necrotizing fasciitis. There you go, Josh. We do have a, a very informed audience. So that's good. So next slide, I think we'll... Uh, Josh, if you could just take us through that differential and then some of the really important management points around cellulitis. Yeah, so um, so Simon's kind of, and you guys have run mentioned most of these already. Um, I think the key thing to emphasise here is that true cellulitis is nearly always in one leg. Um, and bilateral lower limb cellulitis is either non-existent or extremely rare. It's very common for people to have bilateral swollen red legs, but it's generally not due to cellulitis, it's due to venous eczema or lipodermatosclerosis in the context of chronic venous insufficiency or lymphedema. So that's something that really commonly I see in hospital practice, people referred in with bilateral cellulitis or treated for that, and it's, it's probably not cellulitis. And I'll touch on some of these more uh, dangerous differentials, necrotizing fasciitis, particularly in, in a sec. So 
when I think about cellulitis, there's a few red flags I think that it's worth bearing in mind. And these are things that should make you think about referring the patient to hospital or getting a specialist opinion at least. And so there's four of them. One is cellulitis in an unusual location. So facial or periorbital cellulitis generally should be treated in hospital because it can be associated with um, brain abscess, for example, or invasive infection. Genital or perianal cellulitis, because that's often associated with either necrotizing fasciitis or like a deeper abscess. And then cellulitis over a joint isn't always anything to worry about, but it can be septic arthritis or, or a gout arthritis that's making the skin red rather than cellulitis. Uh, if the patient's very immunosuppressed, so say they're a kidney transplant patient on immunosuppressive medicine, for example, their cellulitis can present unusually and often needs hospital treatment. If you think they might have necrotizing fasciitis, which we'll talk about in a sec, um, that uh, should go to hospital. And unusual exposures I'll mention at the end. So necrotizing fasciitis, very rare. You know, I guess in primary care, you would see it. Have you ever seen it, Simon? I don't think so. Uh, not, <laughs> uh, I might have missed it, of course, but no. Oh, what? <laughs> um, so it's rare. So we shouldn't spend too much time on it, but um, it is hard to diagnose, especially in the early stages. Um, and the key kind of uh, pointed towards it is that pain is disproportionate to the, the clinical findings. So the leg doesn't look that bad. It's not that red, but it's exquisitely tender when you touch it, even lightly, the patient screams. Um, and sometimes there's crepitus, so gas in the tissues, um, and you can sometimes see signs of necrosis coming through to the skin. Um, and that needs extensive debridement to save the patient's life. And then the unusual exposures I was talking about are things like bites, fish hooks, salt or fresh water exposure. And each of the reason they matter is because it's not usually just the standard variety, garden variety strep or staph in those cases, it can be other organisms. Um, and the ETG actually mentions most of these um, and says what antibiotics you should use in those contexts. So it's worth asking about that on history. The, the one um, for the middle one there, Josh, looks like um, erysipelothrix. That sounds like something out of Asterix the Gaul. <laughs> erysipelothrix, yeah, that was Asterix's cousin. Oh, that's right. He was yes. a fisherman. <laughs> uh, actually, that's a gram positive rod that fishermen can get and it gives them cellulitis. Um, and then erysipelas, just worth mentioning, you've um, probably the, distinct, the distinction between cellulitis and erysipelas is probably not super important, but it used to be emphasised a lot more in, in medical school teaching in the past. But the reason people cared about the distinction is that erysipelas pretty much is always caused by group A strep, whereas normal cellulitis is usually caused by group A strep, but sometimes staph aureus. And the distinguishing feature of erysipelas is, is in the more superficial layers of skin. So I can't spread unfettered like cellulitis can. And you get, a, you get a sharply demarcated edge. If you remember, if you're old enough to remember, we used to treat AMIs with streptokinase, which is something streptococcus group A strep makes to dissolve blood clots. So, you know, group A strep causes bleeding and tissue damage. Yeah, so I guess we're back to Fran and uh, your registrar wants some advice. Um, she's got a couple of comorbidities, I guess, being overweight and low-grade temperature, and that's the appearance of her foot. So how would you treat her? I guess 
the best answer might be go to ETG, but oral flu clocks, oral keflex, oral penicillin, assuming it's most likely to be a strep, or, you know, in, on the basis of that, do you think she might need uh, intravenous antibiotics? We have 60% of people saying oral flu clocks, 20% of people oral keflex, uh, a tiny proportion of some oral penicillin and a handful, 15% uh, would consider admitting this patient to hospital. So I guess that uh, would lead us to think, Josh, what, what is the um, best treatment and, and why would we think about sending someone um, for IV antibiotics and what's the role of IV versus orals? The top three, you know, none of them are wrong. Pluclox, Kephalex, and penicillin. She really doesn't need IV antibiotics, this patient. She's not particularly unwell. And there's been a recent randomised trial in Melbourne about five years ago uh, where patients with cellulitis who were able to take oral were randomised to oral or IV and it really made no difference at all to how fast they got better, whether they got better or not. So oral, uh, IV antibiotics are for people that are really sick or can't take oral, basically, which we'll get to in a sec. So in terms of management of cellulitis in general, apart from antibiotics, which, by the way, ETG's first line recommendation is flucloxacillin, but it, it does say penicillin if you suspect streptococcus, which is not very helpful. Most, group a, most cellulitis is group A strep, so most people will get better just with oral penicillin or amoxicillin. If there's any pus involved, so there's furuncles or carbuncles or folliculitis or anything like that, then you need to cover staph as well. Anyway, so besides antibiotic treatment, rest and elevation of the leg. And that's probably one of the reasons people are more likely to get better if hospitalised because you sort of force them to lie in bed with their leg up. Analgesia. Uh, and personally, I uh, go for ibuprofen rather than paracetamol because Cellulitis is really an inflammatory condition after the first day or two, rather than an infection. There's, I think of it like a chemical burn, in fact, because you've killed the bacteria. The bacteria have released all these horrible enzymes, like streptokinase, for example, DNAs and other hyaluronidase and things that just damage the tissue, and that's what causes the inflammation. It's important just to look between the toes and see if there's tinea there because that's often the portal of entry. And if you treat the cellulitis but not the tinea, it'll just come back. The other important point I wanted to make is it's the expected natural history on the right treatment that the leg will get more red before it gets better. So we call it the tide, the turning of the tide. So it normally goes up even after you start the right treatment for a period of time and then starts to regress. And the average time until the tide has turned from various studies is about 36 hours. So a pretty common call I get from uh, smaller hospitals is, you know, I've admitted this patient to hospital, started them on flu clocks, I've seen them the next day, it's worse. What shall I do? Or, in, or even worse, I don't get the call, but I switch them to vancomycin and F-triaxone, now what shall I do? Um, so you'd expect it to get worse, basically. It's the patient's systemic features that you worry about their fever and how toxic they are, not how the leg looks at that early stage. And then a third of patients take more than two weeks for their leg to go back to normal. Um, it's important to make the patient aware of that and also to be aware that, I don't have a slide on duration of therapy, but you don't need to continue antibiotics until the leg looks normal. You just need to continue until the germs are dead. And that's basically five days in most patients. 
So who does need referral to hospital? Um, so as I mentioned, if they can't tolerate oral antibiotics, if they're septic, meaning fever, tachycardia, tachypnea or delirium, not just having a fever, and if they have one of those red flags I mentioned before, and here they are again. So if they don't have one of those things, then they can safely be treated as an outpatient with oral antibiotics and, and then with a review two to three days down the track. Thanks, Josh. And I guess, um, yeah, I must say, after 20 years of general practice, I really wasn't aware of the, the tide turning, taking um, up to 48 hours. So, you know, that was probably me calling you at times and saying, what do I do next? Um, and I also think that notion of it taking quite a long time to actually resolve, but, you know, you don't have to keep treating. So I think these are things that registrars very likely not managing patients after, you know, a, a one-off encounter in the um, emergency department won't be aware of. Is CRP useful in monitoring therapy? And secondly, what is significant immunosuppression? So CRP, um, it's not necessary for outpatient cellulitis or mild to moderate cellulitis. If someone's sick enough to need hospital admission, we generally do follow their CRP, but it's very controversial because if the patient's clinically getting better and the CRP is going up, we'd ignore the CRP really. So um, it, it's probably not that useful in this particular condition. And sorry, what was the other question? Uh, immunosuppression, what constitutes oh, significant? Yeah, but so that's a good, by immunosuppression, I don't mean their immune system's not quite as robust as the average person. So I don't mean they're diabetic, they've got renal failure or they're old. I mean, they uh, have an organ transplant, they've got lupus on immunosuppressive therapy, such as biological agents, prednisone, that kind methotrexate. of Methotrexate? Well, actually, methotrexate once a week is not particularly immunosuppressive, does not have increased risk of, of opportunistic infection, so not just weekly methotrexate alone. Okay. That's good to know. We shall move on. Beryl arrives, she's got a chronic lower leg ulcer for a couple of months and um, she's been seeing your registrar. She's got a number of comorbidities, as you can see, and your registrar calls you and says, you know, I've got a bit of an issue with Beryl, here's her leg. I just wanted to get your advice about the swab that I got last week. Um, she, the gram stage, uh, lots of white cells, gram positive cocci, gram negative rods, group B strep, and it's got a pseudomonas and, um, yeah, look, I've come out of the hospital system. I know you have to treat those pretty aggressively. I don't know what you do in general practice. So how would you manage Beryl? So another pulse, there's your options. Fluclox, Cipro, maybe hospital in the home, maybe admission to hospital or call your friendly ID physician. And I guess as you're answering that, we're very much basing these cases on some of um, my clinical conundrums, but also those that Josh is faced with as um, a consultant taking calls from the community, from GPs, but also from uh, hospital colleagues. So we've got quite a spread here, Josh. So um, oral Cipro in about just under half to cover the, um, the pseudomonas, perhaps uh, oral flu clocks, um, maybe need some admission and, and you're going to get a quarter of the group will be giving you a shout, Josh. I should, have, I should have noticed that we didn't have none of the above as the option there, which is the right answer. Oh, that's <laughs> true. Oh, that's no antibiotics, there. just dressings, et cetera, which I'll comment on. Um, 
And um, thank you. Just a very uh, important point. Yes, this could be a skin cancer and it's really important. I don't have a, what is the differential diagnosis here, but um, absolutely we need to think beyond it just being a simple uh, venous ulcer. Yeah, particularly if it's chronic. Just a slight tangent. I don't know where you all are and what your local hospital systems are like, but generally the ID physicians are quite happy to be called about this kind of stuff, even though they're hospital based and it's not, you know, this isn't a hospital thing. I get calls about this kind of stuff all the time. So chronic lower limb ulcers are always colonized with bacteria. In fact, breaks in the skin always become colonized with bacteria. So if you swab it and you find bacteria, that doesn't mean anything. They're generally colonized with gram negative bacteria. And the, the rule of thumb for normal wound flora is spit above and shit below the umbilicus, i.e. oral flora above and bowel flora below including gram negatives. They're quite often colonized with pseudomonas and that's often because there's been, they've been treated with other antibiotics that select off the normal bacteria or they've had hospital contact. But the main point is they don't actually need antibiotic treatment unless they're spreading surrounding cellulitis, the patient has a fever or there's a collection or abscess associated with it. So just because the ulcer looks a bit yucky and it's got bacteria on a swab does not merit treatment because treatment doesn't do anything to the surface of the ulcer. Antibiotic treatment, I mean. And even if we do treat patients with antibiotics, um, they generally improve with treatment just targeting staph or strep, you know, like flu clocks, for example, regardless of swab results. So I not infrequently would see a patient like this, they're sick, they've got spreading cellulitis, the swab has shown pseudomonas. We treat them with flu clocks, they get better. So what that all means is don't take swabs of these ulcers because similar reasons to not taking urine cultures, once you get the swab the culture result, it's a bit hard to ignore. They should be treated with dressings and leg elevation. And if they're venous ulcers, compression therapy once it's healed sufficiently. And if they're arterial ulcers, revascularization is if possible with vascular surgeons. So in a yeah. situation, I guess, if you're suspecting a spreading cellulitis, uh, irrespective of the swab result, you might be treating her with standard therapy. Yeah, I'd give but, her but otherwise, Yeah, otherwise she doesn't need anything. Yeah, no antibiotics at least. She doesn't need some care. It is a good point that if it's chronic, as in more than three months, it should be biopsy to look for malignancy and occasionally unusual infections can show up there too. So a common outreach, nurses always like to take a swab. I think um, our colleagues often like to take a swab. And I think it's a natural thing for maybe a registrar to think, oh, mucky wound, I'll swab it. We might move on. And this is Charlie who presents with a boil on his bum. Um, over the last couple of days, it's big. It's a couple of centimetres. He's otherwise well. And um, I don't know about you guys. I, uh, I, I know we should be lancing these things. I sometimes, particularly if they're pointing, try to avoid it. It takes a bit of time. But obviously we know the healing steel and that pus needs to come out. So... He is lanced in the surgery appropriately. And um, I guess the question is here, do we manage him with antibiotics? And if so, which ones? Does he need uh, admission? And I guess we haven't said his systemic state, but he's, he's otherwise well. So lots of people saying no antibiotics. We've drained the pus and um, we don't need to worry too much. So that's 60% of people. 
And if we're going to use an antibiotic, 31% of people saying flu clocks and a smaller proportion saying oral Keflex. Needs iron D, says um, one of the people in chat, and that's right, that's what he's had. So, um, and Josh will be talking about the role of antibiotics in treating boils like this. But interestingly, uh, afterwards, Charlie's mum tells you the family's Aboriginal. Does that change the management? What, how might that change what we do, Josh, in the, um, the context of treating him if we do choose to use an antibiotic? So Aboriginal people in general in Australia are much more likely to be colonised or infected with methicillin-resistant Staph aureus MRSA uh, than non-Aboriginal people. So it's one of the known risk factors for community MRSA, and that includes in urban and semi-urban environments. So if, um, if I knew he was Aboriginal and I wanted to give him an antibiotic, I'd give one that, that targets community MRSA like cotrimoxazole or clindamycin rather than blue clocks targeting MSSA. Thank you. So he, he, you treat him effectively. He returns after three months. It's quite bizarrely. This, the boil he had three months ago looks very like the one he has uh, this time around. But this is his fourth episode of boils over this time. And he's get, uh, admittedly getting fairly sick of it. Maybe he's had a couple drained and some antibiotics over the time. Um, and yeah, I think uh, we're looking at somebody who's getting recurrent um, skin sepsis. We're talking about Staph aureus, yeah, decolonization. So I'd be curious to know, while Josh is talking about this approach, whether people use this and if there's any departure from the practice Josh is about to talk about. Because I think, again, this is something registrars probably going to be pretty unfamiliar with about how to attempt to decolonize a patient who's getting recurrent skin sores or, or skin sepsis. Yeah, so, I mean, if there is departure from what I'm about to talk about, that's completely fine because this is not particularly evidence-based yeah, and there's yeah. lots of controversy about, and there's lots of different ways of recipes that people use, but this is just what I use. And I actually see patients like this probably, you know, a new one like this every month in my clinic at the hospital. So generally, anyone with recurrent boils, you should consider staph decolonization, even if that you haven't grown staph aureus from a swab because it's almost always caused by that. And whether it's MRSA or MSSA doesn't matter. Still should be decolonized if possible. It's important to wait till the lesions are healed because if they still have pus, they'll just kind of reseed themselves with the, with the bacteria because the things you do don't get into that pus. So you've got to wait till um, lance the boil, treat it with antibiotics if necessary, wait till it's healed and then do this. A seven-day course of an, or either an all-over chlorhexidine body wash once a day in the shower or a bleach bath every second day. And I've put white king bleach there, not as a joke, just to emphasize, it's just household bleach you use. It's not a special thing you get from the chemist. Um, and it's a half a cup of bleach in a bath, or if it's a really big bath, one cup of bleach. And it, surprisingly, people tolerate it well. It doesn't irritate their skin usually. And they soak in it for 15 minutes. So that's the first thing. The second thing is mupirocin ointment to both nostrils twice a day. That's Bactroban brand name. Third is washing all the sheets, towels and pillow slips that they use um, on days one and five of that week. And then finally, just uh, finding out if their pets have skin problems and if their household, people they share their house with have abscesses, they should also be decolonized. So, so yeah, yeah I'm, I'm curious, A, if people were aware of this and, and use a, a, um, 
a recipe like this uh, or if there's anything, you know, that you do differently or in addition? Certainly, Josh, I think I've been talking about, I would suggest chlorhexidine. I would suggest single daily or at night back to to the nose. Probably less vigilant about getting people to wash sheets. Certainly not treating pets, but certainly treating the household and getting everyone to use the um, chlorhex and the uh, and the, the Bactroban up the schnoz. But um, yeah, I think it's interesting, as you say, I don't know that there's really robust evidence around this, but it's certainly worth worth trying. So I'm not sure if anyone's had success with this or, or variations on, on, on this um, particular approach. Yeah, I should say that roughly 80% of people, if we do this, it works and they stop getting the boils. Um, but obviously 20% that doesn't work. And if that's the case, we kind of look into it again, have we done it properly? And if we have, then we might do a second line regimen where we add rifampicin and another antibiotic on top of this stuff. And a question, how much bleach in the bath? Yes, I, I had to ask this. I, I thought Josh was uh, being over exuberant with it, but he um, it's half a cup in a modest bath and a full cup in a big bath, which sounds a lot. And I would have thought you'd come out with uh, blonde hair, but um, apparently not. So I think we've hopefully covered most of the questions as they've come in. I'm sorry, there may be a few for um, that we, we didn't touch on. And Josh, can I thank you very much, not just for presenting tonight. And I always learn a lot when uh, I present with you. Lots of thank yous, lots of uh, nice positive comments. So I hope that's been of value. Um, and we look forward very much to having you next week. Thanks all. Thanks everyone. Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. Simply search GP Supervisors Australia on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter. GP Supervisors Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Programme.